To stay on top in business, stay on top of your technology with the new Business Desk podcast, the business of tech. Listen on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts. Thirteen minutes past eight, he's had the most wonderful life as Michael Parkinson. He's met everybody. He changed television and the way the talk show is conducted. Michael Parkinson retired a couple of years back and wrote about his life, which, by the way, is a brilliant read, the autobiography, the um, the paperback version of which is due out any day now. And we also have news this morning exclusively of a tour. Michael Parkinson is coming to the country towards the end of the year. The tickets for that tour will be on sale at the 1st of June. Meantime... Michael Parkinson is with us. Good morning. Good morning, Mike. Did you ever plan that post the television, post the career, you would find yourself wandering around the world? <laughs> no, I never imagined it at all. I some vagabond minstrel. No, I, I've just I did this one man show for a while now, but mainly I've done it for charity here in England. Um, and I just it worked so well that one day I thought, when I retire, I might just do a bit of stage work and wander around and go to Australia, New Zealand, and England too. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to spend uh, a couple of months touring Australia, New Zealand, first of all, and coming back and and going uh, doing the show here. And when you when when you do the show, in fact, when you wrote the book, and you can see it, your life, your career, tangibly down in front of you, does it seem remarkable? It does seem remarkable. I mean, what terrified me was how many jobs I'd had. I, I had no idea until I started counting how long I'd, how many jobs I had and how long I'd been working. And I, you know, when I when I retired from television, it didn't really mean to say that I was giving up work altogether. I mean, I'm a, I'm a journalist, so I still practice and I still write and I still do a bit of radio and all that sort of thing. And and, and then I wrote the book, and, and then I've got the DVDs coming out next year. We've got 800 shows to edit. You know, we've got a double DVD coming out, Best of Parkinson, and it just seemed to be a logical flow on from all of that to look back in a stage show and, and kind of celebrate with people the kind of shared moments, if you like, because that's been a nice thing about doing the show for so long, that you, you, you have a, a kind of a regular, if you like, clientele who often are ahead of you in the, in the story, in a sense. How do you judge your life in the sense that for most of us, I suppose, until you read the book, you are a talk show host, yet there was mm. so much more to you before all of that. Do you think the mm. talk show defined you or not? And if it did, does it bother you? I don't think it defines me on television, of course it does, but then to actually say that I'm defined by television is to miss a greater part of my career, which has been in newspapers and radio, and newspapers particularly. So I think that, that, you know, I quite understand it doesn't bother me that, I, that people define me. I mean, I once had the best letter I ever had. I had a letter delivered to my home. I live in a place called Bray in England, and it simply said, Michael Parkinson, Bray, England, and then it said, uh, underneath that, it said, journalist, interviewer, and radio personality, if they be the same person. <laughs> what a lovely, um, what a lovely trick. That, kind of, that, that didn't me. I thought, well, that's all right, that's fine. Somebody knows. Indeed. What is the trick to the great interview, given that often it's just a conversation, and I wonder at the end of it all whether you start to overanalyze it and think, I didn't give enough there, and they, you know what I'm saying? That you, mm. can, you can spend so much time thinking about it that you do your head in. Well, well, I mean, the, 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 the key to any interview is, 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 I mean, an interview is consensual. So you have, first of all, in a very short time, to establish a relationship with the person opposite you, that they're willing to talk to you. They might not like you or whatever, but they're, they're willing to trust you for 20 minutes or so to talk to you fairly frankly. Then the, the other secret after that is to not let them down, in the sense that you have done the research so thoroughly that you probably know more about them than they've forgotten about themselves. And then you have to also, on top of that, you've got to learn to listen. Preparation and listening are the two keys to any interview. 
And I, when I lecture to, 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 to young students, media students, there's two things that I say. It sounds boring, I know, but it's a very, very practical job when you take all the gloss away from it, all the lights, all the telling, and that sort of thing. It's basically a routine job. It's like you do the same kind of work as a, as a prosecuting counsel does in the court of law. But don't you ever, or did you ever, worry or wonder, you were paid this phenomenal amount of money, you were a big name and you just sat there. You know, you ever worry about the currency of the job? No, 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 I didn't at all. I got, mm. No, I mean, I, I did the job uh, to the best of my ability, and I did my, my own job in the sense that I would never allowed myself to be defined by tr- fads or trends or criticism or anything like that. I set out to do, in 1971, a talk show for people who got half a brain or more and who actually would have my interests, which would be theatre and films and movies and sport and, and, film, and film stars and all that sort of thing and a very broad base, and, and that I would give them time to talk about themselves, that I would uh, askew uh, gossip and silly questions about, did you have it off with this leading lady and that leading lady? None of my business at all. I have an aversion to gossip, and gossip in my private life, gossip on television, I hate it. So I didn't do any of that. So in the end, if people actually didn't like the show, then they can blame me because it was my show. If they liked it, then I feel very chuffed because it was my own show. Michael Parkinson is our guest. Uh, the autobiography, the paperback version, is out at the end of this month, at the end of this week in fact, and he's coming on a uh, one-man tour later on in the year. But one of the things um, I pick up, Michael, one of the things you pick up in the book, or one of the themes, is, for example, in the old days, if you wanted to talk to Peter Sellers, you'd ring Peter Sellers up, and I told the story on the program earlier on today, but you'd ring him up and you'd have lunch and you'd have a chat. But these days, it's all about agents and all of that's changed. And I just wonder, do you regret that change? Well, I think so. It's very interesting. You're quite right to pick up on that, because, you know, I, I, Peter Sellers, uh, uh, Fred Astaire, James Stewart, Henry Fonda, Bette Davis... Or James Cagney, all those great, great stars, massive stars, 30-foot high people, didn't arrive by themselves, never didn't have an entourage at all. That was in the 70s. Then when I came back in the 90s, I mean, they arrived in, in Pantechnicans, loads of them, 35 loads, and shoppadists and publicists and all those around them. But it, it actually, in the end, didn't make any difference because, you know, in the end, they have to walk down the stairs by themselves. And we also, again, had a rigid rule that we didn't brook any interference whatsoever, which is why it took us so long to do Madonna. I mean, for, for many, many years, I went after Madonna, as you would, because she's this great star. And there were always preconditions, so we always said no. And then three years ago, she turned around and said, yeah, you can come and ask me what you want. You know, no problem at all. We'll do an hour. I do some back catalogue numbers, did da did did And it was fine. You have to do it that way. If you, if you capitulate with these, uh, with these uh, people who are trying to control the... The, the situation, then you might as well give up the job because you've got to have that independence to ask whatever you want in whatever situation. The, one of the best stories I like is Billy Connolly. You, 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 in a way, discovered Billy Connolly and put him on the national stage, and yet mm. Billy, Billy Connolly was so good for you in the sense that you knew every time you had him on, he would do a good audience for you. What yes, is it, what, what, and, and the same is applicable in this part of the world with him. What is it about him? I think he's a naturally funny man. I mean, I don't think you, can, you, you can't analyse humour. Once you do that, it goes away, you lose it. Um, and I, I just think that, that he's, what he is, he's a, he's a wonderful anecdotalist, basically. He doesn't tell too many jokes. He has a very... Come, the best comedians have this slightly skew-whiff view of life. They have a slightly slant-eyed view of things. They don't see it like you and I do. They can't help it. They see something. We see a bird. They see something else. Mm. They see a, we see a, a river and a boat. They see something else. 
And it's something that's indefinable, but when it works, as in Connolly's case, I mean, my word, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, I had two lucky breaks in, in the 10 years or 11 years I did the show from in the 70s. One was Billy, without doubt. I mean, wonderful, wonderful performer, never let you down. And the other was Muhammad Ali. Mm. I mean, I, I charted Ali's uh, uh, rise and fall, in fact, over the 11 years I interviewed him four or five times. And that, again, was, was God's gift to a, to a TV host. Both were great, great piece of good fortune for me. Although what you do say also in the book about Ali is that you lost out on points every time. Oh, absolutely. There's no way you're going to win him. I mean, my father said once after I'd lost one battle, why didn't you hit him? Well, I said, no, you hit him. I'm not going to hit him. (laughs) (laughs) He's 17 stone of world heavyweight champion. Think I'm mad? Uh, But no, but it's the great thing about the job. I mean, I'm, I'm laughing as I'm recording these things because in the end, what defined the job was the enjoyment I had from it. It was, in fact, indisputably, as far as I'm concerned, the best job ever on television. That was no doubt. One of the nicest parts is is what you call the engine of your ambition, which was, of course, your mother, and you write beautifully about it. What what was her role in your life and how she influenced you to where you got? She transferred her ambition to me because my mother left school at 14. She should have gone to university. She was a very bright, intelligent woman. She made a living from a, from a, a council house in a pit village in Yorkshire, made a living uh, knitting, sending knitting about designing uh, clothes and things and sending them off to London and, people like, and things like that. She was an extraordinary woman. She really was. Uh, and, and she didn't want to be locked into life in a pit village. She found it restricting. And, and she was resentful, too, in many, many ways of what had held her back. So she channeled all her ambition through me. I mean, she took me to the movies. She took me to the theatre. She bought, bought books from the library, five or six books a week. I, I could read easily by the age of five I could I could read properly you know quickly and I love books so all those things grew up in me and they made me want to be away from the village as she'd wanted to was thwarted in that omission and I also too at the same time concurrently to all that I'd fallen in love with the job of a man who came to our house to collect the cricket results from my father who was a captain of the cricket team and he was a large stout man with a pork pie hat and a large green bicycle and his name was Stanley Bristol and I wanted his job I thought they would be the height of sophistication, peddling around Barnsley and District, collecting football and cricket results. And eventually I got his job, I was his junior, and that, that's how I started in, in, in Germany when I was 16. For more from the Mike Hosking Breakfast, listen live to News Talk ZB from 6am weekdays or follow the podcast on iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will love our New Zealand Herald podcast, The Little Things, hosted by me, Francesca Rudkin, and my good friend, Louise Airy. We focus on all the little things that you can do to make a positive impact on your life and to cut through the confusion from the health and wellness industry. Join us every Saturday to hear from the experts for all the tips and advice you need. Just search The Little Things on iHeartRadio or wherever you get your podcasts.